0: is running out this message is paid for by alliance for fair and equitable policy
1: the views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of saga 960 am or its management
2: richard richard
1: oh are we on
2: welcome to the richard Show on news talk saga 960 am
1: and welcome to radio free canada news notes and opinions for monday March the 14th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. Quick question. Has anyone heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci since Putin invaded Ukraine? Just, just asking for a friend. On a uh, related note, and we're still working on the U.S.-funded Level 3 BioLabs in Ukraine story. You remember that story. It goes something like this. U.S. Pentagon official, the idea that there are biolabs in Ukraine is laughable. U.S. Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland, there are biolabs, but they're just for research. But we're very concerned the Russians might get their hands on them. Then the National Pulse in the U.S. reported that in 2010, then-Senator Barack Obama helped to secure U.S. funding for a Level 3 biolab in Ukraine. So, to recap, there are no biolabs in Ukraine. Well, there are, but they're just for research. Well, we are worried the Russians could get their hands on the deadly pathogens in those labs, but they're not ours. Well, they're ours, but never mind. Are you following? Now, this is interesting. Have a listen to Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla. In this interview... He's asked about recent comments he made that the decision to push ahead with a COVID-19 vaccine utilizing mRNA technology was counterintuitive to him, but, quote, they believed it was ready.
3: It was counterintuitive because Pfizer was mastering, or let's say we had very good experience and expertise with the multiple technologies that could uh, give a vaccine adenoviruses but some of the other vaccines are we were very good in doing that Protein vaccines we were very good in doing that, and plus many other technologies. The mRNA was the technology that we had less experience, only two years working on this. And actually, mRNA was the technology that never delivered a single product until that day. Not vaccine, not any other medicine. So it was very counterintuitive, and I was surprised when they suggested to me that this is the way to go, and I questioned it, and I asked them to justify, how can you say something like that? But they came and they were very, very convinced that this is the right way to go. They felt that the two years of work on mRNA since 2018, together with BioNTech, to uh, develop a flu vaccine, uh, made them believe that the technology is mature and we are at the cusp of uh, delivering a product. So they convinced me. I I followed my instinct that uh, they know what they are saying. They're very good. And we made this very difficult decision at that time.
1: Now... If you heard that, if you listen closely, maybe we'll play it again later if time permits, doesn't it sound to you as if the CEO of Pfizer is getting ready to pass the buck, to pass on the blame, the responsibility to someone else? I didn't think it was a good idea, in other words. It was counterintuitive, that's what that means. Uh, It didn't make sense to me, but they, they, Talked me into it. I didn't think the mRNA was the way to go, but they convinced me. Yeah, that sounds like he's getting ready to pass the buck. So how incompetent and clueless is U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris? We should put a greatest hits package. Every week we've got more embarrassing audio. Here she is in a press conference following a recent meeting with the Polish president, she's asked a question from an American journalist about inflation, inflation, and how long Americans can expect this inflation to last. Listen to this non-answer. If I can ask you, Madam Vice President, President Biden has said that Americans will feel some pain
4: for the sake of defending freedom and liberty, but there does seem to be no end game in sight. How long should Americans expect? How long should we be bracing for um, this really sort of um, historic inflation and some unprecedented gas prices?
5: Sure. In terms of uh, the discussions that the President, Johannes, and I had, uh, they ranged in subject, including the issue of the Black Sea, and I'll let him explain in more detail as he would like uh but we are again fully aware and apprised because we are in constant communication with the president with his administration here about the concerns that they have about the entire region and frankly the vulnerability all you have to do is look at the map
1: say what what first, she was ready to hand off the question. If you saw the video, she was ready to hand off that question to the Polish president. But he quickly handed it back to her since the question was directed towards her. And more to the point, it was about inflation in America. Then she mentioned something about the Black Sea. Then she rambled on about something we are aware and apprised because we're in constant communication with the president and his administration here. Does she sound completely high to you? I can't tell anymore. She's either high or she doesn't even want to pretend she's paying attention anymore. Either way, it's pretty scary to think that she's one stroke or blood clot or heart attack away from becoming the most powerful person in the world. And word has it that her staff are fed up with her unwillingness to prepare for meetings, to read briefing notes, or do her job, basically. How many of the uh, the supposed 81 million people who voted for her and Grampy Joe Biden have buyer's remorse right about now, do you suppose? I'm guessing more than half. How many would be willing to admit it? Well, that's another matter. How many... Of them are secretly missing this. We will pass
6: critical reforms, making every executive branch employee fireable,
5: fireable by the president of the United States. The deep
6: state must and will be brought to heel. It's already happening. There
1: you go. Hyperinflation. The southern border is collapsed. We're on the brink of World War III, but at least we don't have to put up with his mean tweets. That's a nice trade-off, wouldn't you say? Meanwhile, let me just give you a quick update on the situation in Ukraine. Almost all of Russia's assaults on Ukrainian cities apparently remain stalled, and there have been little or no advances made over the weekend. That, according to a senior U.S. Defense Department source, In other words, we have no idea if any of this is true. Ukrainian resistance, we're told, to the Russian invasion remains strong, particularly particularly around the cities of Kiev and Chernev. And this is according to an official who was not authorized to speak publicly about intelligence assessments. The U.S. official acknowledged that some cities have been surrounded and face increasing bombardment from Russian long-range artillery and missile attacks, Russia has fired more than 900 missiles at Ukrainian targets since the invasion began and the attacks have become increasingly indiscriminate, according to the official. It's hard to tell, though, when you see those repurposed video clips from a Star Wars movie. The, uh, the attack over the, wake- over the weekend on the Yaverev military training base in western Ukraine that was close to the Polish border. That consisted of dozens of cruise missiles launched by Russian bombers inside Russian airspace, according to the official. So, this attack from a distance really illustrates that a no fly zone over Ukraine that, that Zelensky would like would not necessarily prevent Russia from assaulting by air. And incidentally, there were no U.S. troops, contractors, or citizens at the base when the missiles struck. Florida National Guard troops had trained Ukrainian forces there, but left the base before the Russian invasion. At least 35 people died in that attack. Russia and uh, Ukraine kept a fragile diplomatic path open with a new round of talks today, even as Moscow's forces pounded away at Kiev and other cities across the country in a, a punishing bombardment that the Red Cross has said created nothing short of a nightmare for civilians. The uh, the latest negotiations, which were held via video conference, were the fourth round involving higher level officials from the two countries, and the first in a week. The, uh, The talks ended without a breakthrough after several hours with an aid to Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky saying the negotiators took a technical pause and planned to meet again Tuesday tomorrow. The two sides had expressed some optimism in the past few days. An aide to Zelensky said over the weekend that Russia was listening carefully to our proposals. He tweeted Monday the negotiations would discuss peace, fi- peace, ceasefire, immediate withdrawal of troops, and security guarantees. All right, uh, coming up on today's program, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has launched their national Debt Clock Tour. Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director, will be here to discuss.
0: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing?
1: Uh, we've heard so much about the World Economic Forum and their influence inside the Trudeau government. Klaus Schwab bragging that the World Economic Forum has infiltrated many Western governments, including the Liberal cabinet. So I thought it was long past time to de- dedicate uh, some time to talk about this, what I consider a shadowy, creepy organization. Greg Scott, is a researcher with the Forum for Canadian Sovereignty. He'll be here in the second hour. We're launching a brand new segment today. You know, with all the doom and gloom in the world, threats to supply chains, runaway inflation, banks freezing and flagging accounts, a lot of people asking themselves, how do I prepare for the worst? Emergency preparedness expert and author, Stefan Verstappen, will be here he'll join us every Monday starting today with some really valuable survival tips forming communities parallel societies but coming up first Carleton University's School of Journalism held a panel discussion recently with members of the legacy media to discuss their role in covering what the school called the siege of Ottawa by the so-called freedom convoy no bias there right La Cantenental, journalist at True North, one of Canada's independent media organizations, crashed that party and uh, will be here to tell us what happened. All right, that's a show and a half, folks. The Richard Sarich show, off and running for Monday, March 14th. Facta non verba.
2: We're back as the Richard Sarich show continues on News Talk Saga 960 A.M. <laughs>
1: Welcome back. So last week, a bunch of legacy media journalists got together in Ottawa to try and figure out why everybody hates them. They called the event at uh, Carleton University "Journalism Under Siege." Ellie Canton Nontel. Is uh, from True North, one of Canada's finest independent news media organizations. And uh, I don't know, kind of crashed the party. Ellie, welcome. How are you?
7: Oh, uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So uh, initially, were you invited, or did, as I say, did you sort of have to crash the party, or how did you end up uh, going to this legacy journalist event?
7: Well, it was actually one of my friends. Her name is uh, Mary Oaks, and she's also an independent journalist. And she uh, DM'd the uh, event to me on Twitter, and she told me that I had to go. So I asked um, our our staff and our our, our editor in chief Candace Malcolm what they thought, and they were like, "Yes, you should go." And I thought to myself, you know, I've, I'm always an open minded person. Like I I've always liked going to to places where people say things I don't agree with. I always think it's nice to be exposed to that. So I thought to myself, I have nothing to do. Uh, that Tuesday night. So I, I thought I would go and uh, be cool opportunities to do some journalism.
1: Imagine that to do some actual journalism. <laughs> so, so, um, and now my my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, originally independent media were not invited, but there was some backlash. And so they relented and, and, and sent out and allowed some independent media. Is that, is that fair to say?
7: So the original, poster for the event had only really mainstream and left-wing journalists, establishments, legacy journalists. Um, I reached out to my friend Rupa Supramania, who uh, was underground in Ottawa for a lot of the convoys. She did some amazing writing. Yes, she did. She's terrific. Right. She's amazing. So I asked her, like, were you invited to this? Because I wanted the confirmation from my article. And she told me they did invite her after the poster was sent out. And it was actually some of the people on the panel that recommended that she joined. So, I'm not sure if it was because of the backlash or if it was because someone who added yeah, I'm not in the position to you know make that claim but I was glad at the end that they actually did reach out to her because like she offered a very stark different uh, opinion a nice a bit of fresh air amongst uh, uh, the rest of the journalists.
1: Right. And how were you greeted even though this was this was uh, last Tuesday all of the vax that well the fact the vax passport mandate expired March March 1st how were you greeted at the door?
7: Well, I mean, the I had to scan a QR code to do a health screening and that didn't work. So I had to, you know, say no to all these COVID questions. Uh, I had to show my QR code, which I had removed from my phone, but I had to put it back on my phone for this event uh, because despite the mandate being lifted, they decided to still have the vaccine passport for this event. And they also had social distancing for the event. So it was only at 50% capacity. But what was funny is when the event ended, everybody kind of congregated together and ditched the distancing. So I almost kind of wondered if if they just had it at 50% as a a way to disguise maybe low attendance numbers. I mean, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it was definitely interesting to go into this place and they're still stuck in the past with these COVID rules to talk about a subject that you know, the convoy was started kind of because people were sick and tired of all the restrictions, and and yet they're doubling down on these restrictions for this event. So I thought that was a little bit like ironic.
1: Right, right. And um, again, this was hosted by Carleton University School of Journalism. The um, I, I find the uh, the title of this event kind of interesting. Well, it was yeah. journalism under siege, but then they go on to call in quotes, the siege of Ottawa by the, quote, so-called freedom convoy. Uh, Isn't it interesting how they framed the whole discussion? Could you comment on that?
7: Absolutely. I mean, look, the the definition, if you look at a a dictionary, the definition of the siege is a military operation in which enemy forces surround a town or building, cutting off essential supplies with the aim of compelling the surrender of those inside. So the convoy came to Ottawa. They blocked one street, Wellington Street, uh, a couple downtown streets, but overall the police had prepared. So there was roadways for essential uh, uh, vehicles such as ambulances and fire trucks to be able to go in and out. Uh, They didn't block food. In fact, uh, there was so much free food at the convoy. I had never seen this at a protest. I mean, one Saturday in Confederation Park, there was a lot of food all for free, uh, uh, volunteers. And in fact, the people who shut that down who cut off the food was the Ottawa police and they fenced off the park. So for me, the idea of calling this peaceful protest, a siege is a little far and the so-called freedom convoy, I think Rupa put it best in her video when she called that out. It's like, they never said the so-called black lives matter, right? They're they're delegitimizing a protest, which was about ending the mandates and restoring freedoms that had nothing to do with you know, the extremist there were extremist elements, but that the main people involved with this convoy were not the extremists that the media like to portray. So, in my view, I think this kind of just reinforced this notion that people have that the media was biased against this.
1: Ellie cantin Nontel is a journalist at uh, True North, and we should point out you you live in the Ottawa area. You spent a lot of time on the ground uh, during the protests there. will um Ellie, if you could uh, hold on, we'll come back and discuss further this. Uh, legacy media journalist conference at the university or at carlton university called journalism under siege uh, back with more of our discussion in three minutes stay with us let's get
2: back at it on news talk saga 960 a.m it's the richard sarah show
1: journalist at true north ellie canton nontel is with us and uh, he attended Carlton uh, University's Journalism Under Siege event that was attended mainly by legacy media type journalists. They sat around sort of wringing their hands and uh, clutching their pearls, I guess, and trying to figure out why Canadians have so little trust or, or uh, uh, why they don't like them, I guess, is the most blunt way to put it. Uh, so uh, just give me a sense of, of, of who from the legacy media attended, Ellie.
7: Uh, so there was um, some two CBC journalists, Judy Trin and uh, a guy from the indigenous side. Uh, I think his name is George Barrera. And he, he actually was probably one of the most impressive ones because he was a very reasonable, tried to be neutral. You know, he was he actually went out uh, during the convoy, did something similar to what I did with a live stream. And so he was good. There was CTV News, Glenn McGregor, who uh, I witnessed uh, kind of throw a little tamper tantrum at the Sheraton when he found out he wasn't invited to the the press conference. Uh, We had Justin Ling, who is um, a left-leaning investigative journalist, uh, photographer, photojournalist named Justin Tank, who was also, I think, impressive, and then a journalist from the Toronto Star. And it was moderated by a professor who's also a CBC. So a lot of, like, CBC presence um, at this this event, but then also other mainstream sources. Rupa couldn't be here in person. She was... uh, attended by by video uh, but uh, yeah so mostly yeah, mostly CBC
1: right and the moderator was also from the CBC news anchor Adrian Harewood who's also a Carleton journalism associate professor right yeah exactly so tell me the kind of the, what what did they what did they talk about was it as I said sort of trying to trying to figure out why Canadians have so little regard for legacy media journalists
7: Well, I will tell you, Richard, I was actually genuinely surprised by the, I guess, the conversation they had because I, you know, I thought this might just be like a cringe fest, but it actually wasn't like we saw legacy media journalists openly talk about the issues uh, in their industry. Uh, They talked about how uh, they, you know, they ignore rural Canadians. Uh, They've talked about some racial biases that they have in, you know, covering this event, which, you know, there was you know you know, there was a good amount of like white protesters versus maybe like a indigenous protest and they talked about their 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 bias in, in that and they talked about um the, the trust issues they have so to me I, I was genuinely surprised to see that i thought they would just all have their nose up in the air and say our journalism was fine there were some like uh justin ling said he was proud of the work the legacy media did with the, the convoy uh but uh Overall, like, I was genuinely surprised that, to see them admit their flaws. But at the same time, I think that just shows that we shouldn't take everything they say for granted. And, you know, instead, we should.
0: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
7: Doubt them a little bit and do our own research and come up with our own conclusions.
1: So they did engage in a little self-examination, I guess, and and exhibited some self-awareness, which is encouraging. Uh, Since the CBC was so well represented at this uh, conference, did did they discuss Uh, the numerous stories that they've since had to, I guess, take down from their various platforms because basically it was fake news regarding the convoy?
7: Uh, No, they did not. Uh, I actually had uh, read about that today. Yeah, like we've reported on this. This was the Black Locks reporter. Uh, There was one about the funding. and uh, So, yeah, no, they didn't talk about that. And I think, again, that's just another example, Richard, that uh, the protesters were in some ways justified to say they're fake news, because that clearly was fake news. If they've retracted it, it's because it's a false story. So, again, to me, it's like they if they want to build back the trust of the people, they have to do better.
1: And did they come up with any formula how they're going to do better?
7: No, they said they need to have more conversations, really, and I think I agree, but there wasn't any concrete plan going forward. Uh, they, 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 they talked about what they should do, but there was no concrete plan to say, okay, from now on, we're going to stop doing this, stop doing that. I mean, they—they they all were clearly a bit biased against the convoy, calling it an occupation and uh, occupiers, right? So I, I think, while they may be reflecting a bit on on their biases, I think it looks like for now, the the mean, the legacy media will continue its reporting the way it does.
1: How much time did they spend complaining about how mean the uh, the trucker protesters were to them?
7: Uh, they spent a good amount, I would say, like especially at the beginning when they all introduced themselves and talked a bit about their experience. I mean, Glenn McGregor went off uh, a bit and same with Justin Ling. But what I found interesting is they talked about some of the encounters with the protesters, but they failed to mention uh, my colleague, Andrew Lawton, who is an incredibly law-abiding person. Was there uh, the weekend that the police moved in, and he was pepper sprayed for no reason by police? Uh, Alexa Lavoie from Rebel News was shot with, um, I believe, a gas canister.
1: That's right. That's they, they violence
7: were... against yeah. journalism, and I, I didn't hear anyone talk about that. At the, they talked about you know mean words that were said said to them. Uh, well you had literal journalists get assaulted and that didn't matter to them right so um and you know they 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 can go and talk about how mean they were but at the same time as much as I you know Richard I believe we should always be respectful I'm always a very respectful person you cannot deny the fact that in real life with real people if you spend weeks demonizing a group and then show up to that group you know, you're, you're, you're bound not to receive, you know, flowers and, uh, you know, baked goods. You know, it's like, it, it, the, you know, you you have to be mindful of what you say and how people react to that. And I think that's something that the media failed to do.
1: Right. You mentioned Andrew Lawton and uh, uh, Alexa Lavoie from Rebel, both uh, been on the program. Andrew Lawton is uh, is on quite frequently. And we, we talked about the fact that he was uh, pepper sprayed in the face and that Alexa was shot at point blank range with a a tear gas canister. That could have, I mean, had that struck her in the head, it could have been fatal. Uh, yeah, that's very disappointing, uh, to, uh, to hear that neither of those incidents were, were brought up. Um, disappointing, I guess, but not surprising. Did you have an opportunity to speak?
7: Uh, no, well, there was a question and answer uh, and answer period, but, uh, I honestly didn't feel like creating too much of a commotion, uh, Uh, I just kind of more took my notes. But, you know, I I would have liked to ask them that question on why they didn't seem to have spoken up against that. Because had this been a left-wing journalist, had this been Justin Ling, I would have tweeted out in support of him. I don't agree with his journalism. I don't agree with his views. But he's a journalist trying to do reporting. And for me, any journalist that is on the ground trying to do reporting deserves to be well-treated by police. And so, yeah, it was disappointing, but I think at the end of the day, this was a very left-wing event, and I probably was the only uh, conservative-minded person in the crowd, so I, you know, I didn't feel like getting tomatoes thrown at me.
1: There you go. Uh, Ellie Quintin-Nantel, journalist at True North. TNC.news is the website. Please support our independent n- media. Uh, Ellie. Uh, great to meet you. Uh, uh, Candace and um, Andrew are uh, both regulars on the program. I hope to have you back as well soon.
7: Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And yeah, I hope, I hope to come back at some point. I enjoyed this. Fantastic. All right. Thank
1: you. All right. We are starting a brand new feature on the program today with all the doom and gloom in the world, threats to supply chains, runaway inflation, banks freezing and flagging accounts. A lot of people are asking themselves, how do I prepare for the worst? Emergency preparedness expert and author, Stefan Verstappen, joins us next. Stay with us.
2: You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga,
1: 960 AM. Welcome back. It is time for a segment on emergency preparedness. You know the old adage, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And that's what we're going to do here every Monday at 4.39 p.m. Eastern, for Verstappen is a survival emergency preparedness expert, a martial artist. He's the author of The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. And if you go to his website, Chinastrategies.com, Chinastrategies.com, uh, you'll see there where you can download a complete library of over 180 survival books that'll teach you how to survive any emergency or disaster, and it includes all of Stefan's books as well. We'll also tell you about his new online course, Stefan And Welcome to the program. How are you? Hi, Richard. Thank you very much for having me back on. My pleasure. And, and, and congratulations on your new show. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So um, people might be listening to this and saying, well, you know, the war in Ukraine, that's way over there. Uh, inflation, okay, we had inflation in the 80s. I remember that. We got through it. You know, why are we panicking? Why are we talking about preparing, you know, uh, emergency food stores? And, uh, you know, this is just panic. Why do we need to prepare, Stefan? Well, we always needed to prepare. Um, going way
6: back to my days as a Cub Scout, it was in the Cub Scout guide that people should have an emergency kit in their house. And when I worked for St. John Ambulance and the Red Cross, they all recommend that you have an emergency kit, Um, you know, minimum three days worth of food. But now the U.S. disaster preparedness sites are recommending that you have three months worth of food. So they've upped it quite a bit. But, you know, listen, life is life is a crapshoot. Bad things can happen at any time. And for many different reasons there's all kinds of reasons that could affect your daily life and cause total disruption of you know power hydro internet phones um, stores won't open they can't open if there's no power and uh, you need to be on your own and be able to look after your own needs for a minimum of three days and going on to three months and even going on to three years. So, you know, being prepared is not some kind of paranoid reaction. Um, that's that's the motto of the Boy Scouts. Be prepared. Um, especially if you have a family and you have kids in the house, um, you got to make sure that you can look after their needs for a period of time if something happens. But now we are talking about well, listen, we are in a serious situation, folks. Um, what is going on right now, I haven't seen anything like this in my life. I have been warning people about it for at least 20 years. I knew this was coming. I I, I tried to get out of Canada last month. I did my best to escape. Unfortunately, I failed. So I'm still here. But I knew this was coming. Um, what happens... When you are under a communist tyranny, and if anybody doesn't believe we are in a communist tyranny right now, right here in Canada, just look back at the actions of Adolf Castro. I mean, Justin Castro. I mean, Justin Trudeau. (laughs) Look at what happened there. You think we live in a democracy? We haven't lived in a democracy in many decades, okay? And, you know, I told people, you know, okay, it's fine. Demonstrate, protest, sign petitions, vote. But none of that is going to make a goddamn bit of difference. Okay. have to Be careful of the, uh, the language. Oh, sorry, sorry. That's okay. None of this is going to make any difference because... The uh, the powers that be, they're tyrants. They always are tyrants. The enemy of mankind is its own government. And now we've seen how quickly, how ruthlessly that government can turn into a dictatorship. When Justin Trudeau declared state of emergency, which is in effect martial law because of a peaceful protest. So look, the gloves came off. I think he showed his true colors. Uh, in the last couple of months but this is just the beginning here's the danger whenever communists take over and that's what we have now it's a communist takeover never mind it's the liberals liberal is a uh, a front behind which communism works it's just a false flag it's a false face Whenever communists take over a country, one of their primary weapons is mass starvation. So today's tip is going to be stockpile some food. There's a lot of things you need to do
1: to get ready for what's coming. All right, Stefan, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll get into that. Stefan, first stop and survival emergency preparedness expert, martial artist, author of The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. And the website is Chinastrategies.com. We'll tell you about his online course as well. When we come back, how to stockpile food, right here on The Richard Serrett Show, back in three minutes.
2: Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show, News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
1: Welcome back. Stefan Verstappen stays with us and he'll join us every Monday for two segments beginning at around 4.40 p.m. Uh, we're calling it The Survivalist. And he's uh, a survival and emergency preparedness expert, author of The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. And uh, over the coming weeks and months, we'll, we'll talk a lot about that, how to form, I guess, what Rod Dreher called parallel societies in his book, The Benedictine Option. And uh, we'll also tell you how you can download a complete library of over 180 survival books that'll teach you how to survive any emergency or disaster, and again, the website is chinastrategies.com. All right, so, um, you know, I, I don't know that the, the you know the, the the liberals intend on starving the population, I mean, that's another conversation for another time, but there we do face, I think, the very real possibility of supply chain disruptions. Uh, we have you know the potential for inflation really starting to take off here, um, so stockpiling food is always a good idea how do we begin well you're right richard this is not a political thing it's
6: the people that run the world and uh, whether you call them liberals or democrats or republicans all of that is just minor differences um but they intend to you know they intend to starve us I, i don't know what else to say and intentionally But they're going to do it through a number of different ways. The first way they're going to do it is through the supply chain interruptions. Look what's going on already. We had the the Freedom Convoy. Now, what were they protesting? They were protesting the fact that all these truck drivers need to show a vaccine passport before they can go over the, uh, uh, the border between Canada and the U.S. Now, as you know, we import most of our food from the U.S., I mean, we have our own farmers and our, you know, our own produce and things like that. But a lot of our food comes from overseas and they're brought here by trucks and these truckers are not working because they don't want to take the vaccine in order to cross the the border. So we already have a disruption in the supply chain right there. Plus, there are disruptions for the farmers and their supply chain. We know now with the war, with, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, what we call it a war, the, the staged op, whatever it is that's going on in Russia and the Ukraine. But, you know, Russia is one of the biggest exporters of fertilizer to the world. And farmers, and it, we're just about up to planting season now, won't be able to get the fertilizer. They need to grow the crops. And so the farmers are being... Hamstrung and they're being hindered in producing as much as they can. So, price the price of diesel is, is through the roof. Plus, the next thing, of course, is there we go. This is the price of gas. It's insanity, you know, especially when you consider that Canada could be completely self reliant on its own uh, petroleum. You know, I was up in uh, Fort McMurray where we have the tar sands project, or they like to call it the oil sands now. Um, but we're completely self-sufficient. We don't need to import oil or, or gas or these, so we can do it all ourselves. We have enough here in Canada to supply all our needs, plus all the needs of the United States. So, but this is done on purpose. This is all part of a plan. The high oil prices, the uh, the interference with the farmers' ability to grow crops, and the and, and the high gas prices, all of this is going to affect the ability of uh, grocery stores to get the shipments they need to feed us the other thing we need to take into consideration is the hyperinflation um you know I was talking you know thanks to uh, Justin Trudeau and his confiscation of bank accounts I was talking to my my golden bullion dealer and they're out of inventory I said, why is it? Because everybody's taking their money out of the bank and buying gold and silver. And he said, absolutely. They're busy off their butts because nobody trusts the banks anymore. So we are going to be experiencing hyperinflation. So even if you can, even if the food is on the shelves,
1: you might not be able to afford it. All right. So so we've just got got about four minutes here, four and a half minutes. Let's start to discuss, and we'll revisit this topic, obviously. How do you begin to put together an emergency food store? How much, and uh, how do you go about it? Because you know there are so many uh, emergency food storage companies now online for My Patriot Supply and that sell freeze dried um, food that can last up to twenty-five years and so forth. How do we begin? Well, you
6: begin by listen. You got to go up to the grocery store and you got to start right now five years ago, I told people every time you went to the store, buy two extra cans of, you know, pork and beans or spam or tuna. But, and you you know, you do that every week, a couple of cans here, a couple of cans there. Well, after six months, you got a lot of food. It's, it's getting too late for that because the price of fruit food is going through the roof. So buy what you can while you can now. um, Because, you know in two weeks who knows if you can even afford it so my recommendation and that's why we're going to start with that because it's the most serious um danger that we face right now is either the lack of food or the high cost of food that you can't even afford to buy it anymore so while we still have food in the grocery stores and if you have any spare money in the bank spend it on getting as much food as you can i don't like the 25 year freeze-dried nonsense i find it expensive and most of it is like craft dinner or something like that anyways you can buy all the food you need from the local grocery store you can buy the freeze-dried stuff um but i would recommend buying canned food two things staples flour spaghetti rice mashed uh powdered potatoes powdered milk those are your staples. They last forever and they fill your stomach. Then to make that stuff taste good, then buy canned food. But canned food, that contains protein. Protein is always the hardest thing to find during a during a, a, a crisis. So I would get canned tuna, canned ham, canned chicken. I got meatballs and gravy in a can. I've got, uh, listen, I know nobody likes it, but spam, (laughs) that's fine too. You know, at least it's grease and fat and protein. I I get canned gravy. I get gravy mix and spices, salt, sugar. And then what you can do is you can supplement your rice, your uh, your beans, your, 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 Spaghetti. You can supplement it and make it taste good by opening up a can of beef stew, a can of gravy, a can of meatballs, a can of chicken, and mix
1: that all together. And how much should you uh, have? I mean, people, if if you live in an apartment, for example, you you can't you can't hoard you know six months worth of food or can sure you? You can. you can. Okay. Oh yeah, it, it it doesn't take up that much space.
6: I put my food supplies in those vinyl. Uh, storage containers you know the one with a yes. lid and the got kind of handle each one of those holds like three weeks to a month supply of food for me and they're stackable one on top of the other so i can stack six of those things one on top of the other in the back of my bedroom closet all right so that's six months worth of food right there what about fresh water well, that's
1: a whole nother topic. Maybe we should wait. Till yeah, we week. will. We'll do that. We'll we'll save fresh water for another time. Stefan Verstappen, survival emergency preparedness expert. And uh, tell us about the online course at com. Okay, your second strategy for
6: surviving all this. First, you got to get prepped. Get the food. And in the next, in the following weeks when I come on, we'll talk about things like radios and water and, uh, um, you know, security devices. But- After you've prepped after you've got your food and your medicine, you know, set aside. The next thing we need to do is we need to work together in autonomous communities. We got to help each other folks. That's the only way we're going to survive. And that's the only way we can fight the coming tyranny is if we work together and cooperate. That's how our ancestors
1: survived all right we'll we'll talk about the uh, the online course next week as well Chinastrategies.com, the website and the book is the complete guide to forming communities we'll uh, We'll also next week talk about the uh, the library at Chinastrategies.com where you can download over one hundred and eighty survival books to teach you how to survive any emergency or disaster uh, as I say, you know not trying to scaremonger, but it's always to uh, it's always about hoping for the best but preparing for the worst. Stefan, thanks so much. And we'll talk again next week. Thanks, Richard. You have a good week. You too. Stefan Verstappen. Again, Chinastrategies.com. All right. Stay with us. Hour two. Uh, Lots of shows still to come. Greg Scott is a researcher at the Forum for Canadian Sovereignty. And he'll be here to tell us all about the World Economic Forum and its influence in Canadian politics. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Hey Richard! Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard! The Richard
2: Sarrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960AM.
0: Welcome to Hour 2. is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: Coming up a little bit later in the uh, program, Rachel Emanuel will be with us. She worked for iPolitics and um, resigned. She had written a piece about Christian Freeland, how she was uh, seen, photographed, holding that uh, a banner that uh, some have connected with neo-Nazis in uh, Ukraine. And I guess her editor heavily edited <laughs> that piece or corrected, quote, end quote, corrected the piece. And uh, so that was enough for uh, Rachel Emanuel. And she also found it increasingly frustrating to try and uh, write about or report on, uh, I guess, the other side of the whole COVID 19 narrative. So she quit. And now she's working with Western Standard. So Rachel Emanuel will be here a little bit later. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They're launching what they're calling a National Debt Clock Tour. He'll be here to tell us what that's all about. All right. You know, when legacy media outlets like the National Post start to report on some of the uh, sinister influences, let's say, of the World Economic Forum, maybe it's time for us to stand up and take notice. Rupa Subramanya has been excellent on this topic. She wrote a piece uh, early last month titled Christia Freeland's Side Gig with the WEF is Endangering Canadian Democracy. And then I saw this piece written by uh, Chris George for the Niagara Independent titled The WEF and the Liberals' Agenda for Canada. And he writes, and many of us have seen this video. I played a clip on the show circulating on social media. Klaus Schwab was at an American university being interviewed and he was bragging. Klaus Schwab, of course, the head of the uh, World Economic Forum, he was bragging about how the World Economic Forum has infiltrated governments around the world. And he named some of the, um, I guess, the participants in a program at the WEF called Young Globalist Leaders. Justin Trudeau was named. Christian Freeland sits on the board of directors at the World Economic Forum. And many of us are aware of Klaus Schwab's uh, book, The Great Reset. He's talked about how the COVID-19 pandemic provided an opportunity to reinvent capitalism. Freeland has talked about that. Trudeau has talked about that. Should we be concerned about the influence of, of this globalist organization in Canadian politics. Greg Scott is here to discuss. He's a researcher at the Forum for Canadian Sovereignty. Hey, Greg, welcome. How are you?
4: I'm doing great, thanks. How are you?
1: I'm well. I'm very well, thank you. So it's interesting how, um, you know, there have been some conservative MPs that have uh, I guess they've talked at Davos uh, at the World Economic Forum, and they've 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 tried to downplay this influence and said that it's really, you know, just uh, it's it is kind of a weird organization, but it really has no influence. And uh, I wanted to get your take on it. Does the World Economic Forum have influence in Canadian politics based on your research?
4: Yes, one hundred percent and without a doubt. If no other for for no other reason than the fact that you know just the one person, Christia Freeland alone, our Deputy Prime Minister, who's on the board of trustees, sitting next to guys like Larry Fink and Mark Carney, but um, the number of other MPs like you've just mentioned who across the board have have uh, spoken there and are members there, uh, to a greater or lesser degree. I mean, um, Michelle Rempel has come out and saying you know. Passive things about it, and and Pierre Poliev himself has, you know, played it kind of passively in in his own sort of way. Um, I find it hard to believe that someone like Michelle Rempel wouldn't fully understand, or would claim to not fully understand, what actually goes on there and the influence that it has on this country, Um, being that she, you know, works with the other people and and even former MPs in her party, like um, guys like Jim Flaherty and and uh, John Baird, who, who have spent time there, these people all rub in the same circles. They, they talk about these sorts of things. So I do find it hard to believe that, you know, some of the more right-leaning members of the forum or participants in the forum would, you know, be so passive about it.
1: Right. You mentioned Michelle Rempel-Garner, a uh, uh, conservative MP, and she was writing a piece about it because she was, uh, she said, you know, aggressively confronted, I think, at a restaurant with her family someone accusing her of, you know, belonging to the World Economic Forum, being a globalist and being a traitor and these sorts of things. And she wanted to, I guess she was claiming she was going on the record and trying to set the record straight that, uh, yes, she spoke there, but, she, you know, that this this is a conspiracy theory. Well, um, and her,
4: her, yeah. her explanation of it was, it was kind of funny in a way because she said, well, she was confronted by by them about it and she only just found that she happened to have a page at the you know young global leaders forum and that you know they contacted her and she went out there and it wasn't really that big deal but then she kind of went out there again and well didn't really see a whole lot but then she went out there again and it's just like well (laughs) somebody who has you know an ongoing level of participation in it they they're more well aware of what's going on than what she said.
1: She All was, right, I in just want to also. Opinion. Okay, I also wanted to, to comment on Pierre Pauliev. Now he was on the program recently. We didn't get into the, the World Economic Forum, but he has. Uh, I think he's uh, recently been on with Andrew Lawton uh, on True North and and said that he does not uh, agree with the, uh, the the World Economic Forum vision. Uh, so he sort of disavowed any. Uh, any participation with the World Economic Forum and said that you know he right. disagrees with their 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 goals and their objectives. Uh, that's a pretty clear declaration, wouldn't you say, or not?
6: Well,
4: at face value, yes, I suppose it could be. Now, what Pierre even may not realize, and I'm sure he does, is the programs and the initiatives that the World Economic Forum puts down through their various programs to their NGOs and through different government agencies around the world. This whole program is a lot bigger than Pierre Qualia. So he may very well not have favorable opinions of it, despite the fact that he's got a profile page on their website or had one since it's kind of, it's only archived now, but um, whether or not he personally agrees with it or supports it is almost irrelevant because it's happening regardless of his participation or support thereof. And so I guess the question is really, if he doesn't support it, is there anything that he's going to do to speak out against it? And I suppose it depends on what side of the fence you're on and what your views of the World Economic Forum itself are. But there's something that I kind of want to talk about, and it's something that has been creeping into the sort of the public sphere, especially on social media. And it's something that's making its way into our lives sort of you know incrementally as These things often do. Um, Digital identity, and this is something that I had kind of, I've been researching more and more, obviously, over the last couple of years, but uh, there's a World Economic Forum article in particular that I kind of wanted to just walk through if I could, um, because I believe it's got a lot of relevance to what this talks about and what um, Chris George's article talks
1: about, too. Yes, let's do it. Digital identification, uh, also... Uh, sort of a central bank uh, digital currency they've been talking about as well. So, go, yes, go ahead, Greg.
4: That's right. So there's uh, – and anybody's free to you know, Google, DuckDuck, whatever um, search engine you want to use, the World Economic Forum, uh, Forum article is called How Digital Identity Can Improve Lives in a Post-COVID-19 World. And this is not a brand-new article, but uh, it's one that I've seen in the past and one that I've come back to, as I often do, um, when as my research furthers as new things come out. So uh, down through the article, there's an, there's a paragraph in particular that I want to read. It says digital identity trust frameworks led by governments working with the private sector are emerging, defining claims for people and organizations that should be broadly recognized. Such frameworks have emerged in Canada, the EU, the Smart Africa Alliance, Australia, and New Zealand, and in uh, uh, sort of vertical market sectors from health and employment to travel, encompassing data, responsibility, cybersecurity, interoperability, inclusion, governance, uh, redress, and liability. Now, where it says Canada, EU, Smart, Africa, Alliance, Australia, New Zealand, these are all hyperlinks. So if you click on the Canada hyperlink, it takes you to a page from the DIACC. And DIACC is um, the digital ID an Authentication Council of Canada. And so interestingly enough, in looking through this, uh, the history of the DIACC, it it came to pass that it was set up sort of as a continuation from a focus group um, task force that uh, former Finance Minister Jim Flaherty, the Conservative Finance Minister, had uh, tasked. And um, so it kind of got me thinking about, you know, what is this, what is this government organization? Well, on the Board of directors for the government organization. You'll find a handful of federal and provincial bureaucrats and officers, um, an executive uh, from TD Bank who's a former McKinsey consultant, uh, CIBC, Interac, Canada Post, Desjardins, Manulife, BMO, Telus. Um, it's uh, a, it's a long list of institutions that would love to have, um, you know, concerted digital identity verification, you know, applicable to all of their products. And this is the way we keep seeing it going. And when you look at what the World Economic Forum promotes with the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies and the way that they had sort of sort of walking us into this, you know, post pandemic great reset future that they seem to have already gotten well planned out for us. um, I find it a little bit concerning. So, now, if you go back to that same World Economic Forum link, you click on Australia, it um, it goes to a page that talks about the similar things that they have in Australia. Now, it's not necessarily worded the exact same, but, uh, you know, the Trusted Digital Identity Framework. And if you click on the page for New Zealand, uh, it says pretty much the same thing, that it's being, you know, brought in through legislation and... Um, the same thing, the Smart Africa Alliance, it's the same thing with, you know, getting people...
1: Right, I get it. Yeah, so all all these countries are buying into the World Economic Forum scheme to create national or maybe even international digital identification. Um, So I guess we'll take a time out, Greg. When we come back, we'll discuss whether that digital identification is going to be tied in with the QR code that was used for the vaccine passport and then Uh, From there, do we connect that to a digital currency? Uh, Greg Scott is a researcher at the Forum for Canadian Sovereignty, and uh, we'll come back in a few moments and continue to discuss the World Economic Forum and its influence in Canadian politics. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Welcome
2: back to The Richard Sard Show on News Talk, Saga 960
1: AM. This is an important conversation, and we will talk about it more and more in the coming days, weeks, and months. And that has to do with the World Economic Forum, headquartered in Davos, Switzerland, run by Klaus Schwab, of course, wrote the the, uh, book back in 2016 called The Great Reset, Um, wrote a a sequel about The Great Reset and COVID and how COVID-19 offers a rare opportunity to reinvent capitalism, something called stakeholder capitalism, Uh, Right now, Greg Scott from the Forum for Canadian Sovereignty uh, talking about the influence the World Economic Forum has in uh, Canadian politics. Christian Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, sits on the Board of Directors. Uh, Justin Trudeau, among other cabinet members, uh, sort of members of the – or students, if you will, of the the World Economic Forum's young globalist program. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, the uh, leader of the NDP, likewise. So we were talking about digital identification, and um, uh, go ahead, Greg. I'm not sure exactly where we left off. We were talking about different countries that are adapting it. You went onto those websites. You're seeing how it's being implemented uh, here in Canada. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go
4: ahead. So yeah, here in Canada, in you know the sort of the five eyes countries around the world, um, and uh, the EU, the EU as well, and actually the link to uh, the hyperlink to uh, the EU page on that World Economic Forum article. takes you to an archived version which I thought was kind of interesting but um, it's I find it frustrating and and troubling that you know people haven't really been consulted properly about this Um, whether or not it's for you know uh, you know benevolent or malevolent means um, we were never consulted on this now as I'm thinking about this I'm looking through the EU page and there's an actual button that says consultation but not like I mean it's it's not as though there are, are large programs funded by the parties to, you know, actually engage with voters. Being that, you know, we choose these people to represent us and pay their salaries, and the consultation page I saw on the EU's website was just atrocious. But um, in addition to those countries, uh, two of the other ones that caught my eye were employment and travel. And under the employment link, it takes you to a page for this company called Velocity, and and this is straight out of an episode of Black Mirror. It's, um, they, you know, they refer to the Internet of Careers and, uh, you know, they, they talk about how it's going to be helpful when you're applying for a job and verifying your credentials and, and validating your licenses. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's terrifying, in my opinion. And the, the one about Travel Link is uh, actually has been gaining a bit of, you know, um, public discussion on Twitter that I've seen in the last couple of weeks. Um, particularly because Canada is one of the countries involved in this sort of pilot program, um, along with uh, the government of Netherlands. And so there's also a handful of airports like Pearson and uh, Trudeau and some airline companies like Royal Dutch and Air Canada. One of the other partners is Accenture, who's uh, one of the partners that they're involved with in another company called uh, ID2020, which is a sort of a, a Rockefeller Gates initiative But this kind of leads me back to the tail end of Chris's article where he talks about, uh, you know, what happens if you're someone like Tamara Leach or any of the truckers or protesters who did have their accounts frozen, you know, what if you say or do something that the government or even the police for that matter, don't like. And then now they have the ability to electronically, sorry, electronically shut you out of society. I mean, if, if these sorts of, um, means of having your credentials validated and your permits, and uh, you know, even your your passport, your ability to rent or register a vehicle. I mean, we've already seen people's bank accounts frozen. So when all of these right. things start getting tied together, it uh, it 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 leads me to believe a, in a pretty sort of bleak future okay, for what so they sort tied of to plan
1: for it. Right. So when you say tied together, let's talk, this identification program. It's interesting because there was a, a video on Twitter, and I played it on the show. I think it was the president of the Canadian Bankers Association, and of course, you know, they greenlit the freezing of these accounts without you know any pushback whatsoever, which is kind of distressing. But they seem to be taking the lead in Canada on developing this. So why would the Bankers Association be involved in developing digital ID? unless it was going to be perhaps tied to to a future digital currency what are your thoughts
4: and i would be willing to bet that if you were to look in every single country in you know the western you know hemisphere or you know in in western civilization that you'll find similar things to the, the cba and i remember talking or talking about the cba in you know 2018 2019 after seeing on their website that they promote ID2020 and you know, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So these things are being sort of adopted in every single country. So it doesn't come down as a, a mandate from the WEF. They sort of infiltrate all of these organizations that adopt these measures and just say, oh, hey, well, we're going to do this now. you know? And then by the time it gets down to you know the legislative level, it's, you know, the the house is already painted and the furniture is already, lived. you know, are we going to live in this house or not? Well, I mean, it's already built for us. So before the break, you had mentioned digital identity in terms of, you know, um, vaccine passports. And it reminded me of something. So on, on the break, I quickly looked it up. And right now I'm looking at the Ontario.ca's government webpage um, uh, about digital ID, uh, where you could use your digital ID, as an individual, you could use your digital ID to prove your identity when you uh, make an age-sensitive purchase, pick up a package at the post office, apply for government assistance, access and use vaccination records, open a bank account.
1: Ah, bingo. Open
4: a so now, bank account. If you're someone like Tamara Leach and the government has you know essentially blacklisted you, what is that how, what if they can do it to her they can do it to any one of
1: us they did it to people and who donated the, 25 dollars um exactly Greg I got to take another time out we'll come back another segment uh Greg Scott researcher at the forum for Canadian sovereignty as we continue to discuss the world economic Forum and its influence in Canadian politics back with a moment in a moment stay with us
2: the bull session continues on the Richard Serrett show news talk Saga 960 a.m.
1: And we're back with Greg Scott, a researcher at the Forum for Canadian Sovereignty. Give us a website there, Greg, if you could. Uh,
4: the website is, um, uh, sorry, um, ffcs.info. Ffcs.info.
1: F-f-c-s um, so That's much, right. So much to discuss with the World Economic Forum. We'll, we'll, we'll have you back on again to discuss if you'd be good for that. But I want to ask you just uh, whether um, Christian Freeland our deputy prime minister, finance minister, who sits on the board at the World Economic Forum, um, Mark Carney, former uh, um, head of the Bank of Canada uh, and the Bank of England, also sits on the board. My, that's my understanding. Now, he's he's not in cabinet presently. I think he has aspirations, perhaps even to be prime minister. Uh, but uh, in your estimation, should there be a law... Uh, legislation preventing someone who sits on the board of the World economic Forum from being in cabinet or holding a cabinet position
4: That's an interesting question. Um, you know it's sort of it's sort of new for a lot of people to understand that people that we would elect to be in office um, would you know have affiliates with these sorts of other organizations and not even necessarily have affiliates with, but like be on the board of trustees with so i mean it's, it's one thing to be a, a young globalist leader and um i think it's an entirely other thing to be you know, sitting and rubbing shoulders with guys like klaus schwab and larry fink and um uh,
0: are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for african americans do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing
4: it doesn't really do a whole lot to bolster trustworthiness in my opinion so i mean perhaps that's something that we should probably think about um whether or not you can be you know a party to both of these things um i certainly think there should be a higher level of transparency and accountability for these um i mean it's it's not as though the private meetings of the board of trustees or the wdf are public information as far as i understand so uh it just it 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 feels very, you know, specter-ish in in my estimation. But, um, I mean, the higher you go up in the banking industry, the less people know about it and the less people tend to trust it. And you had also brought up digital currency. And and I remember, you know, um, I I don't remember the the gentleman's name at the moment, but uh, the head of the Bank of International Settlements talking about central bank digital currencies. And, you know, all of these, you know, the World Bank Group, BIS, they're all all pushing for the same digital identity programs, the same, you know, the same elements of the great reset and the sustainable development goals that our government officials are adopting and, and you know, taking for granted from the fact that, you know, maybe they might not come from the most trust- trustworthy you know, people and places.
1: Right. Um, so I, I want to get into a discussion about how creepy the world economic forum is. And, um, there's a, uh, a gentleman, known uh, Professor Yuval Noah Harari, and he yeah. is considered Klaus Schwab's top advisor. And, uh, he, and so, he let me re, let me read a quote. He said, "Humans, yeah, please, yeah. humans are now hackable animals. The whole idea that humans have this soul or a spirit, and nobody knows what's happening inside them, and they have free will, that's over." Uh, assuming that that is an accurate quote and he really said that that's kind of chilling humans are now hackable animals they have no soul they have no spirit they have no free will that's over he's klaus schwab's top advisor what do they have in store for us
4: well this guy you've all know harari is someone who i hadn't really heard of him up until about a week or so ago when i started seeing these kind of quotes and clips from him um I haven't, Richard, been able to personally verify that he's any sort of official advisor to Klaus Schwab in any capacity. I mean, um, he does have a a pretty impressive impressive, uh, profile page on the uh, the World Economic Forum's website, but I haven't seen anything about him on the Board of Trustees or the Executive Committee. So that's not to say that he's not an advisor to Klaus. Um, It certainly wouldn't surprise me if he were, but um, I'm not necessarily operating under that assumption. However, we have seen him speak several times at the World Economic Forum. And um, so he's uh, an, an Israeli historian and uh, I haven't read his book. He's written uh, written two books called Sapien and they were, you know, the, the original one of them, the follow-up. Um, in his talks, I mean, that's pretty much a direct quote that you spoke there. He certainly comes across being more favorable than neutral when it comes to transhumanism and hacking humans and, you know, claiming humans have no souls. And uh, he, he speaks very openly about how this can be used for governments to manipulate and and corporations to manipulate um, us as voters and you know consumers and he makes it very clear that he believes that there's no way to stop this there's no going back to the things uh, the way the things were before covid and um um i don't know He, he he definitely creeps me out he he doesn't really seem to share the same values uh, as sort of my friends and family and circle of people that I spend my time with. So,
1: Well, I think that's the whole point, right? I, I don't think the World Economic Forum uh, and their agenda, uh, whatever it is, and we've only just started to sort of flesh it out here on the program, I don't think those values coincide with the values of a, a Western liberal democracy or Canada. And um, I think we ne- we need to have a a long, hard discussion in this country about what the World Economic Forum stands for and whether uh, we are comfortable as citizens in Canada of having some of our elected representatives doing the bidding of the World Economic Forum.
4: Yes, I I agree 100%. I love the way that you brought that up. And I think when it comes election time, these issues aren't going to go away. They're only going to get more and more uh, forced into the spotlight and um, you know incumbents and and uh, other candidates are really going to have to answer honest questions and hopefully they'll be able to answer them in a you know forthcoming and forthright way um, as to whether or not they do have involvement in these sort of organizations and to what extent um, because like you said I, they don't share our values these aren't the values of Canadian voters and Canadian taxpayers and Canadian workers or American workers or, you know, British workers or anything. I mean, these people are, they, they are the elitist crowd. They are the, you know, the same people who attend the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations and Bilderberg and and um, these sorts of other entities. And uh, its it, it doesn't really take a whole lot of time to look at all these things uh, in their parts to be able to see sort of the mosaic of the whole from a, you know, a 10,000-foot view.
1: Uh, Greg, I hope you'll join me again and we can have uh, further discussions on this.
4: I would really like that. Thanks for having me on, Richard.
1: Greg Scott, researcher at the Forum for Canadian Sovereignty. All right, when we come back, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation launching its national debt clock tour to show Canadians from coast to coast what it's like to watch Canada's trillion dollar debt go up in real time. Stay with us.
2: Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
1: Welcome back. Canada's national debt is now sitting at $1.1 trillion. That figure is going to change in two minutes. It's going up by about uh, half a million dollars. Every two minutes. it's Kind of difficult to wrap our heads around that, which is why the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is launching its National Debt Clock Tour to show Canadians exactly what it's like to watch Canada's trillion dollar debt go up in real time. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario Director at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins me now. Hey, Jay, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So what is this? Uh, first of all, tell, explain what this debt clock looks like. Is this, uh, is this a billboard or what does it look like?
5: No, it's actually it's, it's a debt clock uh, that moves all across the country. And essentially, it's, it's a U-Haul truck of sorts that's been uh, redone so that on the side of the truck, we've got a digital clock there that's going to show exactly what Canada's federal debt is. And our federal director, he kicked off the campaign today. Uh, in Victoria. And he's actually going to be driving all across the country. He'll hit uh, Ontario near the end of the month. We'll be doing some stops here in Ontario uh, and go all the way to the East Coast. And essentially, it's a U-Haul truck that's going to, on the side, show what the federal debt is, what your share is, and just how, it's of course, the scary part you mentioned, just how much it's going up each and every day, an hour and, and two minutes.
1: So you had a, uh, a debt clock tour back in 19, in the 1990s. Uh, I think that was your first national debt clock tour. And um, it, I'm just reading here from your press release. This is fascinating. The previous debt clock back in the, uh, the 90s did not have enough digits to display the current government's uh, $1.1 trillion debt. What was the debt back in the 90s? Do you remember?
5: The debt back in the '90s was about 400 billion dollars at its peak, um, and when Justin Trudeau became prime minister, it was about 600 billion. So, he has effectively doubled it in his time in office, including during uh, COVID, but also well before COVID. And yeah, the original debt clock, the the truck, it uh, had to be retired essentially because the clock capped at a trillion dollars. And when the when it was built, when the debt was well under. Half a trillion dollars, uh, I guess, folks at the time thought, okay, well, this will be enough, a trillion dollars. We're not going to hit that. And, of course, now we've surpassed it. We're almost at $1.2 And that's just the federal debt. We're not even talking about the provinces. So, you know, I think it's important for people to know, you know, everybody across the country, every citizen, your share is about $30,000. That's just federal debt. And it's increasing by $16 million an hour.
1: $16 million an hour. Uh, So what does that work out? Do we know how much the debt is increasing every day?
5: I think it's roughly uh, $450 million, if I'm not mistaken.
1: $450 million every day, the debt increases. Roughly, yeah. Yep. So by the time the truck uh, finishes its tour, and it's in Victoria, and it's heading across Canada... By the time, I'm not sure what the end point is, whether it's St. John's, Newfoundland, or where, or where, but any idea what the debt will be by the time the, the truck rolls into uh, Newfoundland?
5: Well, right now, the debt's sitting at about $1.18 uh, trillion. We're expecting it to get to $1.2 trillion by the time the debt clock tour is over, which, of course, will be a new a national milestone. Uh, obviously, the federal government uh, is still running a massive deficit. It's still... You know, well over 100 billion dollars. It's still going to be adding uh, very, very quickly. So yeah, it's going to hit 1.2 trillion as this uh, campaign goes along.
1: So uh, you write in the press release the federal government isn't projected to balance its budget until 2070. When you say balance its budget, you're just talking about the deficit, correct?
5: Yeah, that's right. We're just talking about the deficit. So as it stands right now, the Trudeau government, um, their fiscal plan. Uh, means they won't balance the budget so they'll keep running deficits until the year 2070 uh, and that that would all presume that no new spending is added from now forward so just the current plan the current spending trajectory we won't have a balanced budget till 2070 we'll be adding to the debt all the way till 2070 and it will get into the trillions of dollars. Uh, We're not expecting to run a surplus until 2070, so that says nothing about the debt. The debt will go up every year all the way till then, and it's a very scary picture, and that's why we've launched the tour, especially as we start to get uh, somewhat back to normal after COVID, and we have to see our politicians uh, tighten their fiscal belt and get their houses in order.
0: All
1: right. Uh, Where can we go to learn more? Give us the, uh, the website for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation.
5: So our website is taxpayer.com. We have a separate website that's uh, debtclock.ca. It shows exactly where the debt is right now. So each and every person who's listening, you owe almost $31,000 for the federal debt. But of course, we have debt clocks for the provinces too. Ontario's debt is sitting at $440 billion and your share is just under $30,000. So you and I who both live in Ontario we've got about $60,000 worth of government debt.
1: That's why they want to come for the uh uh the um the equity in our homes, I guess. It's all starting to make sense. All right, Jay, thank exactly. you so much for this. Thank you. Jay Goldberg, Ontario director at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They really they're, gonna, they're deliberately running this country into the ground. This is all part of the New monetary theory. Just spend, spend, spend. You don't have to pay it back. That's what they believe. All right, when we come back, Rachel Emanuel used to work for iPolitics and other mainstream legacy media outlets. She quit in disgust. She's now writing for the Western Standard, a fiercely independent news outlet. Rachel Emanuel will be here next to tell you why. Stay with us.
2: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
1: Every once in a while, a uh, news reporter, journalist, who worked for the legacy mainstream news outlets will, uh, will go public, will become a whistleblower. And uh, another one has just come forward. Rachel Emanuel previously reported for the Globe and Mail, and most recently, iPolitics. She just recently resigned from iPolitics and has uh, joined the Western Standard, which is a fiercely independent news media outlet. And uh, we have some of their reporters on this program from time to time. And uh, we're very pleased to have Rachel Emanuel on the program. Rachel, how are you?
8: Hey, I'm doing well today. How are you?
1: I'm well. So you've gone public. You've written this uh, column for the Western Standard. Uh, What precipitated you uh, resigning from iPolitics.
8: Sure, so as I mentioned a bit in the column, you know, it was sort of a buildup of things, largely that I felt I wasn't able to cover the stories that I wanted to cover, which was to take a critical angle at the significant uh, limitations that we've seen on civil liberties across Canada during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ability to cover these types of stories was severely impeded and at many times when I was able to cover them, you know, edits um, and changes were made to the story that I didn't agree with and that I wasn't comfortable having published underneath my name. Um, I really feel like, you know, we've seen just such an insane level of government interference in private life over the last two years. And it is absolutely incumbent on us to take a very critical lens and really look at the changes that are being made as we are seeing a lot of suffering across the country resulting from this. And I was absolutely not able to do that. So I began to look for a, another means where I felt I would be able to follow my conscience and do the type of work that I think is necessary um, during this period of Canadian history that we find ourselves in. Um, and so that's what led me to the Western Standard. And one of the things that I had, had brought me to mainstream media that had kept me in mainstream media for so long was... Felt like there wasn't a lot of voices like mine within the mainstream media and I felt like I was offering something different and new and that is why I did try to stay for as long as I did. Um, so it was a difficult decision for me to leave, however, then sort of the article that I had written about Christy Freeland. Um, as you might be familiar, you know, Christopher yes. Freeland was photographed with this rather controversial, with this controversial banner that has ties to neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And I wrote about that. And after receiving pushback from Freeland's office, um, an editor at iPolitics actually decided to change the article. Um, I was not aware of the changes that were made until they were made. And I was not, um, I was not pleased with them. I did not consent to them and I still do not agree with them. So after that happened, then it really just solidified my decision that yes, I made the right decision to leave. And um, I think that I will be better served. Served in this new outlet at the Western Standard and be able to present the stories that I think are so important right now.
1: So uh, do you have confirmation that it was a phone call or an email from Christia Freeland's office to your editor at iPolitics that resulted in, in changes to your article?
8: Yeah, sure. So the evening after my article um, went online, I was actually walking home from work and I got a call from an editor who said, I just spoke to Christy Freeland's office and they're not happy with the editorial framing of your article. Um, and then a couple hours later, I got another call that some changes had been made to my article. And then I I went online and I saw them at the around the same time everyone else saw them. I didn't have an opportunity to look at them in advance.
1: So we had uh, Candace Malcolm on the program from, from True North right, talking about this. Uh, so for those who may have missed it, the Deputy Prime Minister pictured uh, holding a, a banner uh that has, well, it uh, has links to the uh, the Bandera organization. This, uh, Stephen, Stephen Bandera was uh, linked to Ukrainian nationalists or or um, even Nazis in the Ukraine. And they were responsible for the slaughter of about anywhere between 100,000 and 200,000 Ukrainians and Poles living in Ukraine at the time during the Second World War. Uh, I mean, Christy Freeland speaks Ukrainian. There was writing on this banner. It's hard to imagine she didn't know that she was holding on to this banner, uh, what what did the the editor at iPolitics try to change, or what did she change, or he change about the article?
8: Sure. So um, one of the big changes that was made was that we took out the word neo Nazis um, and basically just said it was a scarf that was associated with. Um, you know, Ukrainian nationalists. And the other thing that was a big fuss, which I thought this was so silly, was that, oh no, it was a scarf, not actually a banner. So um, the way that the scarf, the banner, the scarf is being held, you know, it looks like it is a scarf, but it's not being worn casually around someone's neck. It's being held up. Three people are holding it. Um, including Christy Freeland. And when I had actually written the article in its first draft, I had used the word scarf and I had used the words banner interchangeably because it is a scarf that's being used as a banner. And then the copy editor came back to me and they said, okay, well, which is it? Is it a scarf or is it a banner? And I explained how it was being used. And the copy editor goes, no, that's, that's not a scarf. That's a banner. So an editor and I had actually made the decision to use the word um, banner purposely because that's how it was being used Um, In the photo and and being used at the protest, rather. So it was just funny to me that that was such a cause of contention. And then another editor actually came down quite hard on use of that term later and removed all references of it. Um, And then just sort of softening down of the language to make it seem like, you know, Freeland was pictured nearby a scarf that coincidentally had the red and black colors associated with the Bandera movement. No, no. She's seen holding it up there. She has it in her hand. She's smiling. It's not just the colors of the scarf. You know, it's the slogan across the scarf. All of these things tie together. Like it was very clearly a part of this movement. And as you said, you know, Christopher um, has extensive knowledge of Ukraine. It seems unlikely that she wouldn't have known what it meant. Maybe it's possible. But either way, I think the greatest irony of this all is that her office was so desperate to cover up any coverage of the story. And it seems like every decision they made at every point made the story just linger for as long as possible.
1: And on the uh, the COVID front, um, you were, I guess, told, cautioned by editors at iPolitics uh, to follow uh, the official science by the Canadian government and not to provide a platform to anyone who who offered up an opposing narrative. Is that is that an a, a fair assessment?
8: Yeah, exactly. When I was actually like sitting down to write my column, um, I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to speak about specifically. And I was having a hard time because I'm not used to writing columns. I'm a reporter. I generally just cover the news. I don't offer my opinion on things. But um, whenever there had been such an occasion, such as like an argument with an editor over an an article, I would always record those conversations. So I just went back and I listened to all the things that had made me upset over the last two years. And I was actually, I would not even forgotten about that specific incident, but an editor had said to me, you know, we need to be following the government science on these things. We can't be seen as espousing anti-science and anti-vaccine mandate views. You know, we're a public policy organization and we need to be following the government policy on these things.
1: Wow. Um, congratulations for your, uh, your new gig at the Western standard. And, uh, I commend you for having the courage to come forward, speaking about this openly, who knows, maybe this will be the, the beginning of a, a trend and more and more of your colleagues will, uh, will escape, uh, the legacy mainstream media and join independent media. Rachel, thank you so much. I hope you'll come on again.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: Rachel Emmanuel has uh, just started a new job at the Western Standard. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, Brandon, and Declan. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.